0: Our scripture this morning is both Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and all the people's plot in vain? For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thanks for joining us at Sojourn. We say that we prioritize the Bible here, that it is God's word, inspired, inerrant, and enough for us as our authority to inform and instruct. All that we do. And one of the things that we need to recognize over and over again is that we don't prioritize the Bible by just hearing it on Sunday only or by it being prioritized on a stage or a platform in front of us. We prioritize it as a people by by not only hearing it on Sunday, but by being a people of the Word. And Psalms, the book of Psalms, can help us be just that. This book that we're starting this morning, it's the largest book in the Old Testament. It's the most often quoted book in the New Testament. And as one of the early church fathers says of Psalms, he says, you will find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. And moreover, whatever your particular need or trouble from this same book, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you don't merely hear and then pass on but you learn the way to remedy your ill. You, you've heard that uh, the app, you know, app extravaganza out there is there's an app for that, whatever your problem or thing is, like there's an app for that. And like, we could go to the Psalms and be like, what, what's going on in your soul? And say, well, there's a Psalm for that that gives words to that. Like there's a the Psalm for all of life. And, and where one author says that, that a lot of the scripture speaks to us, what the Psalms helps us do is it speaks for us. It's a thoroughly theological book, what it does is that it reorders our affections, our desires, all the things that are going on within our soul all the time, and it directs them to God in prayer. It tunes those things to praise to God in song. It reorders all of our affections and desires and directs them to God and submits them to Him. It shows us that this is a God that is to be lived for. It guides us to living for His glory, that that is worth our lifetime of giving ourselves away for. And so as we, we go to the Psalms, what we've done when we've started Books of the Bible together as a church that seems like a momentous occasion is we want to pray together. And I want to ask you if you're comfortable uh, to kneel, that you would kneel along with us as we humble ourselves before the word of the Lord to listen to it and start this journey through the Psalms together. Would you bow with me? Our Father in heaven, if you don't build it, we labor in vain. We turn to your word because we know that our words will quickly pass away. And we want to stand on yours. And we want to be informed and instructed in all of our lives and all the movements of all of our souls, which is, uh, if we were to take a the temperature of our souls everywhere in this room this morning, they would be all across the board, and we want all of that, whatever that is, whatever we came into the room with, we want it all to be shored up, transformed, changed, and directed towards you as it is meant to be. So Father, would you shape us and change us by your word? We, we turn to it again knowing that we need you to establish the work of our hands, Change us by your word. Direct us to live our lives and to give ourselves to living for your glory for the rest of our days. They're numbered. May we use them all for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This summer, uh, my family and I, we were able to take a trip to see some of our dear friends in St. Louis, Are so planting a church there, planted a church there, and, and overshadowing all of the city, you know this if you know much about St. Louis, is, is the Gateway Arch. It's kind of like a whole city is in the shadow of this arch, and we were able to go to the arch. This summer, and and me and the older kids at least, and we went to this place. And you you know, when you walk up to the arch, it's this beautiful structure that's overshadowing everything. But if you want to go in, and if you want to go up to the top, you actually first got to go down. You you go down, kind of into a little bit further under the ground and into the foundations of it. But they link together these two sides. You're going to pick a side. I think it's north and south because it's the gateway to the west. Like you pick a side, and you're going to go up on one of those sides but the either side that you see in the ground and when you get underneath there like you know they're gonna link in the top this is the gateway it was called the gateway to the west it was a, a sense like hey we're we're looking further out there what the expansion could look like and and from the top of the arch you can view like it, I mean very flat place, like so you can view, I don't know how far the human eye can see, but it can go a, a long way, you can see a long way out there, and, and kind of when you get to the top, you have these little windows you can see out of, and you can, in the top of this arch, see kind of all that's under the sun, right, like you can see all of life that's going on in the city, there's lots of movement that you can get in your eyes because of all the places you can see at the same time, if you're, if you're in the right spot at the right time, you might be able to see a baseball game going on in the stadium, you know, just, just uh, beyond view, there's movement, but there's also stillness. There's things that are just sitting still. There's, there's things that have light that you can see shining on them, and there's, there's places of shadow and darkness. There's, there's crowds, maybe in the baseball stadium, and then there's, you can tell, lonely places. You can see some things that are living and trees and beautiful and things that are, are wilting and dying, buildings that are collapsing. You can see all of those things uh, in the view of the arch. And, and Psalm 1 and 2, when we come to them, they're a little bit like that arch. There's these two psalms. And they're on either side here. They have deep foundations, deeper than we can even touch this morning in terms of their biblical theological foundations. They go down really deep. And in terms of the biblical literature, they are very prevalent. And they link together to give us a view of all the rest of the Psalms that we're going to cover, all the rest of the book of the Psalms that's in our scripture. These two are connected and meant to be used to view all of the rest of the psalm. So look at the connections that Psalm 1 and 2 have. In chapter 1, verse 1, Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man. And in chapter 2, verse 12, you have this last line that ends with blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's this sense that these two are bracketed off by what blessed is, the blessed life and the blessed man. And so we're meant to look through these two and and see all the rest of life, all that's going on in our souls, all the life and all the death, all the light and all the shadows, all the lonely places, all the crowded places. We're meant to view all of those Psalms and all of our soul through the lens of these two. And what Psalm 1 to show us right from the beginning is they show all of us who would come to these Psalms and look in through them, they will show us the the path to the blessed life, what it is to be blessed And how to be a blessed man and how to live a blessed life. It shows us the the path to the good life. This is the good life that's presented to us in Psalm 1 and 2. In Psalm 1 and 2, they show us this good life and then two different ways. Like the, the different pillars on each side that connect at the top. They show us the good life through God's rule, and the good life through God's ruler. They show us the blessed life through God's rule that we are to follow and delight in, and the blessed life through God's ruler that we are to submit to and hope in. And this view from through Psalm 1 2 to the rest of the Psalms is needed, because when we look through the rest of the Psalms, like there are some hard ones coming, and, and life circumstances are matched up in the Psalms, and some of those circumstances are really hard. And some of those circumstances are really dark, and it doesn't look like the view that we saw at the top of the arch sometimes. And so he wants us to know, God wants us to know, before we get into those dark places, those lonely places, those places that need a lot of work in our souls, the varied things that are going to come into our path in life, he wants us to know. God wants us to be sure, what is the blessed man and woman? What is the blessed person? What is the blessed life? What does it look like? And he gives us that in Psalm 1 and 2. So that when we get into those places that are a little bit different looking, and the circumstances feel off, and we start to question, we can go back and say, no, God wanted us to know, and he didn't want us to be in doubt, as to what it means to have the blessed life and to be a blessed person, to be flourishing in his world. And so that's where Psalm 1 starts. Blessed is the man. Blessed, this is how to have, a, a, you know, another way to translate it is happy, but that doesn't quite get at it. It's flourishing in God's world and with the presence of sinful humanity in a broken and fallen world, with the presence of worldly seduction, knowing that that is an especially uh, difficult place to be. where We're tempted and we have others around us that are tempted and fallen and broken and we're in this place that all this is coming together. So it's important for us to know what is the blessed life and what is the blessed man. And so in verse one, he says, blessed is the man. And here's what he doesn't do. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, this verse assumes, as the scripture does, it speaks into reality, it assumes the presence of evil and the presence of wickedness that are at work in this world through people, there are the wicked, there are sinners, there are scoffers. There's this uh, poetry that's at work here that's paralleling one another in these, this first verse, and it's advancing each time. Boom, boom, boom. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. And these three are interesting words because they're also used in other forms in the Scripture to describe, in, in Proverbs, they would be three words that are used to describe the fool, and in the book of Proverbs, the fool is the one who has no fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of not being a fool. And Psalm chapter 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there's, there's no God. And there's a different way than that. God's way. It's his presence has interrupted this world, and it means that, that God's way is not the only way that's presented to us that there's uh, wicked counsel, there are ways of sinners, there's, there's seats for those who are scoffers, and there's this advancing lines. They show a progression here for the, for the individual, right? Walk, stand, sit. You're, there's a movement from, from sort of casual acquaintance with something to being kind of like wholly settled in it. You're not only like, I'm okay with this, and now I'm a little bit more okay, and now I'm like scorning those who who wouldn't be okay with these kinds of things, and the line is drawn really clearly, this is wicked, this is sin, this is evil, and in a fallen world, wicked counsel is often going to progress in a certain way to where it sounds kind of good. We have fallen and broken hearts, we're in a wicked world, and the progression goes really quickly, like some of this counsel of the wicked, it doesn't sound all that wicked, and then we start thinking about the way of sinners and it doesn't look like it's that wayward of a way. It actually kind of seems right in this world. And then all of a sudden we're sitting in the seat of scoffers. In a fallen world, everything else in that place of that seat can seem kind of silly like why wouldn't I go why would I go a different way? You see this in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 7, after warning people in Proverbs 6, don't carry fire close to your chest. He talks about this man in Proverbs 7, who, who all of a sudden, what he's doing is he's just going for a walk at night. That seems uh, casual enough, right? He just goes for a walk, and he, and he walks near the adulteress's house, the adulterous woman's house. He's just walking. And then all of a sudden, he's listening to her, and she fills his ears with smooth talk and flattery, and then he goes into her bed. So you can see the progression, right? It's, Started out innocently enough, you're just going for a walk, you happen to go to the wrong spot at the wrong time of day. Then all of a sudden you're listening to some things, you're paying attention to them, and then all of a sudden you go down into her bed, which is a place, he says, it's like the ox goes to the slaughter, that's a place of destruction. And most of the time, this progression is not going to be steep, fall off a cliff, it's going to be a gentle slope downward. It's probably going to feel and seem right in many ways. So what can be done to avoid the seduction of evil in our broken world with fallen hearts to keep us from that downward slope? What's going to help us have the blessed life if that's not it? Well, verse 2, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The, The blessed man doesn't carry fire close to his chest. He's careful with how he walks. He's careful with how he stands. He's careful with how he sits. But the blessed man is not just a man uh, who's known by what he doesn't do. Notice the contrast. He he doesn't do the things of verse 1. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. But here's what he does do. He delights in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. There's three things he doesn't do, and one thing that he does do. And you can look at this and say, yeah, there's evil in the world, and the seduction of evil is present and at work in us, but there's also something else at work in the world. You see, entered into verse two is God's law. In other words, there's a fallen, broken world where the seductions of of evil and wickedness are real, and they're appealing to our hearts, and into the middle of that brokenness, God spoke. There's his law. That's his Word, he spoke into that to instruct, that word law means, it's Torah, it's instruction, it's looking at the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses would have written, and it's looking at those to instruct, and he spoke those instructions into a broken world, he commands in a broken world, this is, this instruction, this law is God's rule. And the blessed life, the blessed person, the blessed one, is one who lives under God's rule as described in that law. The blessed life is life under God's rule. The law, the the first five books of the Old Testament is what he's referencing here. It's it's God's word in written form. That's the law that he's speaking of here when he says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates on it. Day and night. There's a serious reflection to this blessed man. He gives thought to it. It's going over and over and over in his head. That's the activity. It's the activity that I think is being described in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When it says of these words, the law that God is giving to his people, that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Like it's just plastered everywhere in your life. There's not like, here's the sacred space where you meditate on it, and here's the place that you can just do whatever you want. It's like, no, the, the blessed man and the blessed life is where he takes that word, and it's everywhere he goes, the word's there with him. And he's thinking about it and giving serious thought to it. And notice the motivation of this blessed man. Verse 2, it says, his delight is here. Day and night, Leviticus Day and night, delight in Deuteronomy. That's the blessed life. That's the blessed person, is the one who gives himself to that kind of life. And this man who does this, this person who does this, what does it say in verse 3 that he's like a tree? Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The blessed man is like a tree. And this law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, they're they're like water to his soul. And there's fruit and there's prospering. Not just in one season when the things are outside, the weather is great, and, and we're getting all the nutrients we need. In every season, there's prospering and there's fruit. Now, when you heard verse 3, and there's trees, and there's streams, and there's fruit, what does that draw up in your mind? That picture is a really vivid picture, and it's a vivid picture for a reason in the scripture. That picture is Edenic. It sounds like the garden, doesn't it? Look back into the garden scene of of the very first of the law in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, this is verse 8, in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed and out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So here you have a, a garden, you have trees, you have water. There's, there's good and fruitful and productive life here. And what was Eden? This was the place that God had created to meet with man. Like God made this place almost a sanctuary of sorts for God and man to meet and to walk with one another. And the picture that Psalm 1 brings up and draws up in our mind gives us that the the blessed man is the one who finds that kind of Edenic life, life with God, where he meets with God and walks with God in the law that he meditates on day and night and he delights in it. In Eden... Man lived the good life, apart from sin, life with God, under his good reign, under his good rule. That was the blessed life. And now Psalm 1 picks it up and says, the blessed man finds that in the law. One author says it this way, that the poetic effect suggests that meditating on Torah, on the law, mediates the presence of God so that those who walk with God in the word experience a renewal of what life would have been like in Eden. The wicked don't delight in that law. They do not meditate on it. They do not enjoy it. And so because of that, they do not enjoy the Edenic experience of walking with God and meeting with God. They might have counsel. They might have a way that they follow that seems right. They might have some seats that are prominent where they're scoffing. But here's what happens to them. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Psalm 1 is trying to move us in a direction, right? It's not neutral. He's trying to persuade us to a certain life, the good life, the blessed life of the blessed man. And here he's moving us in that direction. No matter what it looks like, right? No matter what kind of counsel it is and how high and mighty and powerful and influential it sounds. No matter the way and how many people are following this way and how right it seems. No matter those seat that seems to scoff at everything else. Verse 4 is still true that if you go the way of verse 1, then your leaf will wither one day. And he says in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the words, will not stand. There's a future judgment that is spoken of here. That will go against those who go against the rule of God through His law, through His word. The wicked may stand for a time. Evil may have a way for a time. There might be the seat of scoffers for a time, but their way, what happens to their way? It perishes. It's not the blessed life, it's not the good life. That's not the way of the righteous. Their way doesn't perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows their way because he created that way. He wrote that way. That way, the way of the righteous is the way of his rule. It's found in his word. That's the blessed life. That's the good life. That's the path of the blessed one. And there's a clear contrast being drawn in Psalm 1. That you can follow and delight in the law or you can walk the way of wickedness. There are two ways that are given in Psalm 1. There are two outcomes and no neutrality. You're going one way with one outcome or another way with another outcome and there's nothing in between. Only one of those ways is blessed. And isn't that what Jesus says in the New Testament too? He comes and he preaches this sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. You find this in Matthew chapter five through seven. And what does he present? You hear the kind of language that that Jesus has there. He, He starts out and he says, blessed. Same kind of language used in Psalm 1. Blessed. And, and the blessed life that Jesus starts describing, it seems backwards, just like here. We have counsel of the wicked, ways of sinners, seed of scoffers, so that when we come and we, we think about the blessed life is meditating on Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like that doesn't seem right. It seems strange in light of this counsel that I'm hearing from, from the way of the wicked. And the blessed life that Jesus talks about seems really strange too. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. like That sounds like the opposite of what you should be saying, right? And it does sound opposite in this world, but that's what he says. He presents that. This is the blessed life, as if you fall in line with these. And what does he do? He presents two roads. They look very different. One is very wide and is well-traveled, and it would probably be the place where you'd get a lot of fanfare, and a lot of people would go with you, and then there's a narrow road. There's not as many people there. It's hard to travel. It's a rough place. And they go to two different outcomes. The wide road leads to destruction, he says. The narrow road leads to life. And he talks about trees. There, there's trees. And, and these trees, they produce fruit, but they are different kinds of fruit based on whether they're a healthy tree or not a healthy tree, or whether they've lived the good life or not lived the good life. The, the, the unhealthy trees, the bad trees, they bear bad fruit. And the good trees, because they, they have health, they're bearing good fruit to the Lord based on the health of the tree. And he ends that sermon uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 7 with... The, the wise and the foolish builders, right? He, he talks about there's two ways of living. There's a wise way of living and a foolish way of living, and they're building their life that way. No matter what way they're choosing, they're choosing one of these ways, and they're building their life that way. And, and the wise man, what does he do? He builds his house on sand, and the work that he has collapses. Or, Unwise man, scratch that, reverse that. And the wise man, what does he do? He builds his house upon the rock. And what does it do? It stands or falls, stands or collapses based on what? What does he say? Based on whether you hear my words and you do what I say. Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 1? Psalm 1 has the exact same goal. To put before people the good life, the blessed life, under God's rule, that you would hear this word and obey. Deuteronomy says the same thing, like I'm putting before you life and death. it's found in this word. You obey it, there's life, you disobey it, there's death. And Psalm 1 is putting that in front of us. We need to hear this word and do. That God's rule and his word is meant to be followed and delighted in. That's the blessed life. No matter the appearances that we're going to face in this world or the circumstances we're going to face, we need to know going in that it might look really strange, but the blessed life is really the life under God's rule that's given in his word. And so let's ask, does meditating on and delighting in the law sound like the blessed life? Is that how you describe being a blessed person? Does it sound edenic to you? Like this is what we were made for? I can't figure out in verse or in Psalm 1 what sounds more strange to me. That he meditates on it day and night, or that it's his delight? <laughs> and both describe the blessed man. Do either one of those describe us? And if they don't then it is obvious that we are not convinced that what he's talking about is the blessed man is really the blessed man. And the life he's presenting as the blessed life is really the blessed life. And poetically, what Psalm 1 is doing is persuading us that following and delighting in God's rule and his word is the blessed life and the blessed person is the one who gives himself to these kinds of things. And you still might be asking like, man, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Meditating on that? How in the world is that the blessed life? Those are the places we might want to like, actually, we're going to skip ahead a few places. We might find a psalm that we like, and then we're going to go ahead and go to the New Testament because those things are strange. They're just laws often. How is that the blessed life? How is following that the blessed life? Who could delight in that? Who could give themselves to that night and day? Surely you've heard of Ernest Hemingway, one of America's greatest authors. It's interesting, uh, he Not a great man with women, I think, is a fair way to describe him. One of his wives didn't care for his writing. In fact, she married him and hadn't read any of his works. She only read them afterwards. And here's what she said. She said, I fell in love with a man, and then I fell in love with what he wrote. And that's the path to the blessed life. What does the law give us? Genesis, Exodus... Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What does God's word give us? It doesn't just give us laws and rules and here's how it gives. It gives us the lawgiver, And we get to know the law giver. We get to know God through his law. We know who he is, know the author through what he wrote down. We have to remember what the law is. Too often we think of it as just mere words on a page, just commands that he's given us to follow, information to absorb, data to, to kind of take in. And all of those things are partly true, but it's so much more. The, the law is revealing to us The lawgiver, the author, like it is showing us his character, his righteousness, what he's like, what he cares about, what he doesn't like. It shows us his instructions. It tells us how he acts and what he'll do. It gives us commands, sure, but it shows us, here's a good rule for my people to follow for the good life. And it does it all in word form. The good life given for us because it gives us the author. We love the law because we love the author. We fall in love with the author and we go and fall in love with the law. This is where we go to meet with God, to walk with God, to have Edenic experience because this is where he is. He's revealing himself. This is where we go to share intimacy and fellowship with God. We go to his word because that's where God is revealed to us. This is where streams of water flow for the prospering in all of our seasons of life, in all of the ups and downs and turmoil of our souls, in all of the circumstances that we're going to go through. This is where we go for water that will feed us and keep us producing and prospering no matter what life throws at us. And a key component of that is both the activity, meditating on it day and night, and the motivation of it, delighting in it. If there's no desire for it, if there's no delighting in it, then you, you need to know the author. Get to know the author first. And don't just go and, and just say, like, I'm just going to start memorizing. Yeah, we want you to go there, but we want you to know the author. So when you're reading that, make sure you're not just trying to get data on a page. You're trying to know a person who wrote these words. Because the problem is not going to be first a lack of meditation or a lack of delight. It's going to be first with a lack of knowing God. So go to his word to know him, to meet with the author. That's what the blessed man does. The blessed man goes to the law and meditates day and night because he wants to be with the author. Think about Deuteronomy again. Before there was, we're talking about this when we're walking along the way, we're doing all these things uh, when we're with our children, and no matter where we are, we're talking about this plastering on our doorposts everywhere around. Before there's that, what does it give us? In Deuteronomy 6, it gives us the Shema: the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and then what does it say? You shall love him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your might." And so before we move into the, like we're talking about it all over the place, like there's love for God. And when you love God, you're gonna love what he wrote. You're gonna love his words. You're gonna delight in them. And what Psalm tells us is that that's the blessed life. That's the blessed man. One who delights in this law, who meditates on it day and night. Is that the blessed life to you? Is that the blessed life to us? Do we see the blessed man As one who delights in God's word is his rule seen in his word. What you're committed to following, to making your delight, no matter what life looks like. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous and everything else might look strange. But I'm only following this way because I know the author. The Edenic life that you were made for. That all of us in this room were made for. Life with God. Walking with God in relationship, meeting with God, having fellowship and communion and intimacy with God. That is described for us in Psalm 1. This is what it's like. There are two ways in Psalm 1. Two outcomes, and only one is the good life. Only one is the blessed life. Both may stand for a while, but only one will stand in the end. And Psalm 1 is showing us there's a good life in following and delighting in God's rule and His word, no matter what life looks like. The good life, the blessed life. It's also held up in Psalm 2. We see the good life in God's rule, and in Psalm 2, the, the, the good life, the blessed life, is found in God's ruler. The, the blessed life is also found in submission to and hope of God's ruler, and that's what Psalm 2 gives us. In Psalm 1 and 2, again, they are meant to be connected, I think. There's blessed in Psalm 1, 1, and in 2, 12. There's no superscription for either Psalm 1 or Psalm 2. All of Book 1, most of Book 1, which is of the Psalms, which is Psalm 1 through 41, 42, 41, I think. Most of them have superscriptions that say, this is David. Not these two. It's taken out. In both of these Psalms, you see so many similarities. There's great opposition, and there's a few really key links that are given to us in the first three verses of chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth, they set themselves up, and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In chapter 1, verse 1, it, it informs what we see in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 2. The, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seed of scoffers. Don't you see that in those first three verses? The, the counsel of the wicked. And, and there's in, chapter two, or in Psalm 2, there's, there's people's plotting. And that word plot actually is connected to chapter 1. The word plot is the same word that's used for meditate in chapter 1, verse 2. They're thinking hard on this. There's a lot of counsel that's going into this thing. They're given some serious reflection. They're meditating on, what are they meditating on? How do we burst apart the bonds of the Lord? They're trying to figure out not how to live according to the law, but how to break free from the law. In other words, the counsel of the wicked is found in chapter 2 where the nations are raging, there's the counsel of the wicked, raging. And it can sound very threatening, can't it? Here are the nations raging, kings of the earth, strong and powerful people. They are setting themselves up and they're taking counsel together against the Lord. It might sound intimidating and threatening that the influential and powerful voices in all of the world, they're, they're gathering together and they're putting out some real momentum against the Lord. That's probably, again, going to sound a lot like, And that's kind of appealing. That might seem right. There's a way there that seems to make sense. And so you might come to chapter 2, and you might think about this raging that's going on in these first three verses, and you might could read that. God's people could maybe read that like Elijah after Mount Carmel when he he does this great that God shows up, and he takes his sacrifice, and then he flees and wants to die, and is like, I'm the only one left. Look at this. They're influential people. The kings, the greatness of the universe, like that looks like they're all against the Lord. Maybe I'm the only one left, and it starts to sound a little bit crazy after a while. Can't our world feel a little bit like that? Like everything's against this. Like the whole world's most influential and powerful people, they're scoffing at the Lord, and they're still in power. They're doing what they want. And it says here, that it's like there's this constant plotting. We see that around us. Constant plotting, constant rebellion, scoffing always. And it may seem like the world then, that the blessed life, it actually is not very blessed. Like if you're going to live according to Psalm 1, then you're going to have a lonely existence. And this is going to be a lonely place to live. Maybe a really strange place be a strange place to delight in the law of the Lord when all the nations and powerful and influential people are actually plotting opposite things strange place to delight in the law of the Lord the law of the Lord and his rule and that's the very thing that they are designed to throw off and that probably sounds really convincing like when the snake comes into the garden and says actually you'll be like God it sounds really appealing to us that they could say stuff like hey God's rules his law his commands they're actually really restrictive on you don't you think Like, there's actual bonds that he's putting on you. What kind of God is that? There's a better way. Come this way. That the blessed life is not really being ruled by someone. I mean, he's going to put cords around you. The blessed life is really you break free from all those cords. That's the blessed life. Do what you want. And it pulls on the temptation that's in all of us. To think that true freedom and true life is to be found in liberation from God and all bonds doing what we want. It's not found in God and His rule. It's found in me and my rule. And with these voices, the blessed life can start to look a little scary. A little lonely. Probably a little foolish. And what the blessed life is and the blessed person is starts to be really confusing. Wait, which one is right here? And with this part that's going on in our worlds. We need to place this psalm and what's going on here as part of a bigger story that needs to be heard. In in Genesis chapter 3, we have this promise that God, after sin enters the world, here's what he says is going to happen. Chapter 3, verse 15, he's saying this to the snake, but for the blessed hearing of all who will listen, that I will put enmity between you, the serpents, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Like in chapter 2 of the Psalms, they're they're taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, his offspring. Here's an offspring in Genesis chapter 3 that said he's going to rise up and he's going to smash you. And in chapter 2, what are they doing? They're raging against that offspring. The Lord and His anointed. And so when we see the raging of the nations and the counsel of the wicked going on, that shouldn't actually be surprising to us. We should say, actually we know this, this is expected. We knew this was gonna happen. We're putting it in place of the bigger story that's going on. It's seen in Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. You see both seeds at work there. You see it in Joseph and his brothers. Here's one who's supposed to be like he's doing the work of the Lord and his brothers try to destroy him. You see it at work in Pharaoh and Moses. You see it at work when Balaam, he comes. Balak has has summoned him to call a curse down on the people of God. You see it at work there. You see it at work all over the place. But I also want us to notice a, a small word in chapter 2, verse 1, in the midst of all that that's going on, the war that continues to rage, of chapter 3, 15 just being carried out of Genesis, the, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Notice this word in chapter 2, verse 1. They plot in vain. Vain. There's a great word that he puts right in the middle of there. While we see all this going on, we say, actually, that's vain, and that draws up the image that we saw in chapter 1, verse 4. All right, here's a great image of vain chaff in the wind. Poof, and it's gone. And that's the plotting of the nations. And so when we hear the raging and the plotting and the counsel that's going on, we also need to hear not just the voices of the world and all of that's going on there, but we need to go to the heart of Psalm chapter 2 and hear some more words. Listen to what the Lord says. Again, in the heart of this chapter, verse 4, the Lord responds, He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. The Lord Holds them in derision. Poetic words are dripping here. Everywhere he says a word, it is just dripping. Think of these words. He sits. The powerful and influential of the world with strong voices, influential voices are raging. They're up in arms. And the Lord is not worried or concerned. He sits. He's reigning. And where does he sit? He sits above, on high. There's a seat down low, and there's a seat above. And there's raging down below, and there's sitting up above, and he laughs. And laughter is such good medicine, especially in the midst of difficult trials and hardship and worry. Here's the Lord laughing. Not worried. Not concerned. Not like, oh man, I'm in panic now because I created these nations and now they're raging against me. He laughs. He holds them in derision. What we see is chapter 1, verse 1, where blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, is reversed. That the Lord is now the one who's sitting And he's the one who's now kind of, in a sense, scoffing and holding them in derision. And because of their raging and plotting and counsel, his fury and wrath is provoked. Verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In his fury, God doesn't fly off the handle and send out lasers to destroy and decimate everybody. In in his fury he speaks, not with a rant or a tirade, but with an announcement. That's what he's doing here. Let me announce to you something. You're you're doing all your thing and plotting and raging. Let me announce something to you. I've got a king, and I'm setting him on my hill. Not just any king. He, he's giving an announcement of the establishment of his king. And the answer to all their raging and plotting is not any king. It's my king, on my hill. The words he's using here are beautiful and, again, the depths could go far, but he's saying, here's my ruler. And here's what he's going to do. Verse 7, I tell of the decree that the Lord said to me, you're my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, as we read Psalm 2, it was a psalm that's... Alluded to a lot in the New Testament. In in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, Peter and John, they've they just been arrested. They say, Don't talk about Jesus anymore, and they're like, I'm probably still gonna do that. And then they go and they they go and they pray. And, and one of the things that they think and say and pray together is this psalm right here. And what's interesting about that is they ascribe this psalm to David. I think they know what they're talking about, so I'm gonna say this psalm is is from David. David is an interesting one to have written these very words, isn't he? David was the one who was given a promise. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find the promise that God had given to David. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verse 12. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne on his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when David writes these words in Psalm 2, David himself, a king, a king who's supposed to sit in Zion, right, in God's place, as God's ruler. What does David do in Psalm 2? He actually looks forward and says, oh, yeah, the thing that you promised me, I'm looking forward to that ruler. This this ruler that we're talking about here, this one that you say is going to be a son, I'm looking forward to him too. So he looks forward to this ruler that is God's ruler to come. And this ruler to come is, is given a little bit more description, right? He's the son, The anointed of the Lord. He says, I'm going to call him son. And this one is the one who's sovereign over nations. That couldn't be more clear here, right? He's the sovereign over the nations. He's the judge of all things. He's the ruler who's going to rule forever. And what Psalm 2 is putting before us, even David looks at him and says, that's where our hope needs to be. When nations are doing this thing, and I'm supposed to be the king, but I'm not the king that God has been telling us that we need to have. So we're going to look forward. Look forward with me. To our hope in the ruler that God is going to give us. In verse 1, the nations are plotting. And here in 7 through 9, what are they? They, They're their heritage to this ruler. In verses 2 and 3, there's counsel against the anointed. And here's how it ends in verse 9. They're broken with a rod of iron. They're dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the wicked really are going to be like chaff in the wind, driven away. They will not stand in the judgment. The the sinner's are not going to stand in the congregation of the righteous. I mean, there's one and two linked together again. Only God's ruler, only God's anointed will reign in the end. He alone is going to be the one that is supreme over all things and all peoples. Not only should this ruler fill God's people with hope, but it should be a warning to everyone else who rebels. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Yeah, we, we saw verse 4. Would that sound striking to you in chapter 2? The Lord sits in the heavens. He laughs. He holds them in derision. Verse 5, he's going to speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Does that sound like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what kind of God is this? There's wrath and fury here. And let's know, before he unleashes wrath and fury, he unleashes a warning here in verse 10 and an invitation. Be wise. How does that begin? With the fear of the Lord? Come to Him. Be warned. He's going to speak. He's going to unleash His wrath and in His fury. He's going to be saying some things. And verse 9 is true too. He's going to break them with a the rod of iron. Be warned. And then what He wants turn. Verse 11. Turn from that. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The warning and the invitation is to submit to God's ruler, to submit to God's king, to come under his reign, to give up on any other ruler. Should that be a king of the earth or your own life, he says give up on that, turn to a different way. Because the different way is the blessed way. That the way of the wicked is the way that's going to Perish. But if you go that way, the way of these nations that are raging, there's only death and destruction ahead. But there's a different way, and he's inviting people to it, warning people against that way, inviting people to a better way. And he says, what do you need to do? You need come and serve with fear, rejoice with trembling, fear and trembling. Well, it takes the form of verse 12. Verse 11's fear and trembling takes the form of kissing the sun and running to him for refuge. The same son of verse 7, who unleashes the the fury and the judgment that we see in verse 9, is the one he invites them to turn to, to kiss in submission and honor that he is the rightful king, and the one who is to be refuge. And so whenever we think about fear and trembling of verse 11, we need to know that it's kissing and refuge of verse 12. That's what fear and trembling is. Verse 11's fear and trembling is the kind that leaves one in such awe that we can't be in doubt as to who's the real king and who's not. But it's also the kind of fear and trembling that draws one close. So you say, like, I'm, I'm running to him because he's the one true king, and I'm getting low before him, and I'm kissing him, but I'm also running to him for refuge. Amen. How beautiful is that? that the one you actually fear and see is the one who's sovereign over all and can unleash fury and wrath is the one, same one that we run to for refuge. And the blessed life is right there in submission to that king, in refuge of that king. The, the hope that he puts before us in chapter 2 is found in this ruler to come, God's appointed ruler. The other way, the way of chapter 1, verse 1, is a way of destruction and death. But Psalm 2 says, hey, God's people, listen. You're to find your hope in God's ruler, in his anointed, and see submission to him and hoping in him. No matter what everything else looks like, you're to see that as the good life. Though the nations rage and the peoples are plotting and it seems like those plots are actually going to break forth those bonds that God has put on there. Like, doesn't it doesn't feel like that at times. Like the, the, the water's going to break the dam and it's going to break forth and it's going to be terrible. It seems like they're going to prevail. Here's what Psalm 2 puts it for us. Hope in the ruler. It won't prevail. He is the one who prevails in the end. There's going to be times when it seems like nations and rebels are winning. Like we're Joseph in prison. Like I've been doing what you've wanted me to do, God, and here I am languishing here. What is happening? There's going to be times like that. It's all through the pages of the Old Testament. You know it in your own soul, in your own life. And God's people can take heart that God's ruler has no rivals. And in the end, there will be no rebels left either. That life isn't to be found in bursting apart the bonds of God, but to be found in submission to and refuge of the same God. That the good life is found in submission to uh, God's ruler, no matter what else is raging. And this rule is to be our hope. This ruler is to be our hope in the midst of nations, plotting, kings, raging, seemingly winning. We put our hope not there, but in our ruler to come. And so, as God's people, they come to the Psalms and they read and think about and meditate on and learn and sing and pray these Psalms together. They need to see all of the, those Psalms and all of their lives through the lens of Psalm one or two, through the lens of God's rule that's to be meditated on and delighted in, and through the lens of God's ruler, who's to be obeyed, submitted to, accepted, and looked to for refuge and hope. And, and what Psalm one or two says—that's the blessed life. God's people need to know this is the blessed life, that's the blessed person. And they need to know that because Psalm 13 is coming. And we're going to do that next week, Psalm 13. How long? How long? I'm looking around, it's like it's not working, God. Or Psalm 88, it starts dark, it ends dark. And you know these psalms, right? If you've been in the psalms, you know there's a lot of them that are very dark. Like lament makes up a ton of the psalms, 40% of them. Those are all coming because there's real counsel of wickedness. There's seat seats where they're scoffing at God. The influential, the powerful, the mighty, they're all sitting and they're raging like we're going to break these bonds apart. And it seems like they're actually going to do it at times, doesn't it? Those things are all ongoing. But God wants his people to know the blessed life isn't apart from God and his bonds. It's actually under his rule and under his ruler. Amen. And so as we get to both Psalm 1 and 2, they're, they're needed to view the rest. To see everything else rightly. To see the good life rightly and the same is true for us when we come to the psalms we need these psalms but we get these psalms and we get a clearer view the old testament saints they had a solid promises they had good foundation for their lives to see the the good life through these psalms, through the good life, through God's rule and God's ruler and his law and in his anointed. They could see the blessed life in Psalm 1 and 2, and they could hold on to it with confidence and follow this rule and submit to this ruler that was to come. But what was fuzzy a little bit for them is clearer and brought into sharp focus for us in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, in him, we have Psalm 1 and 2 meeting together. This is Jesus Christ is the the Psalm 1 man and the Psalm 2 man. And we don't even have time for this, but we're going for it. Like, he's the Psalm 1 man who no one else is. Has anyone else uh, avoided the counsel of the wicked? Have you avoided the way of sinners? Or have you sat in the seat of scoffers? We've all failed there, but he's the one who didn't do any of those things. He, He was perfect in all these ways. He he wasn't, he was tempted and he was without sin. He alone is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. He is the one who comes and he perfectly obeys the law, fulfilling every single portion of it, submitting his life fully to it. He says, this is my bread. I love this. He delights in it. He obeys it Fully. And so when he comes to the judgment, he alone is the one who's facing judgment and coming out on the other side because when he went in, he went in as the perfect, spotless sacrifice. No blemishes here, nothing to judge here except for what I poured out for the sake of others. And so he comes out the other side as the one who is victorious out through the judgment. The good life is found in following him. And what did his life look like? It looked like following this law. What was the activity of his life? meditating on the law day and night. What was the motivation? I delight in these things. I love these things. He alone can save us from another way that turns us to the way of the wicked because he turns to us the word in flesh and he walks with us in his word and he says this is a better way. He alone turns hearts from delighting in other things that we think will bring us satisfaction and pleasure and he shows us a better delight in himself. He shows us God's rule in God's word and we follow him and we make him and his word our delight. He's the Psalm 2 man where all other sons that could have been appointed sons of David failed and couldn't carry out the, the commands of God. He is the son that stands as the only begotten son. When Jesus comes to be baptized, he says... The voice from heaven sounds, this is my son, and I'm well pleased with him. When he's transfigured, he says, this is my son, listen to him. He's the king, and what he does as the king is he reigns and rules over everything. What does he do when he comes to this earth? He says, demons, you're out of here, and they're gone. Diseases, move out of the way. Sin, you're forgiven. Oh, death, I'm going to defeat that too. He's the king who comes, and he rises and defeats everything, reigning all, of, all over things. And after he raises, he takes his throne. We call it the ascension. He, he gets lifted up into heaven. And do you know what he does when he gets there? He, he rises and he ascends and then he sits. And he sends out his people. And he says, you go. And you make disciples of all these nations that are raging. And as you go, I'm going to be with you always to the, of the end of the age. And he's saying in that, I'm going to have a congregation of the righteous that I spoke of in Psalm 1 and 2. And they are going to be ones that stand in the end because I'm sitting right here, right now through the judgment. I'm getting them too. All others who continue in rebellion and refuse the warning and the invitation will be finally and fully put under his feet. He is the one who will reign. His wrath will show forth his righteous judgment in the end. And though it may not appear to us now, it will be but a very short time when the raging of the nations is put to an end. And the kingdoms are all then put under in submission to the one true king and his kingdom. And while we live in this world where all other else seems kind of a valid way right now, we need to hear from Jesus that there is only one way, and it's found in Him. So church, no matter what it looks like, no matter where your soul is or what the circumstances are in your life, the, the good life is found in following Jesus, in obeying Him and His Word, in delighting in Him and His Word. The good life is found not in breaking apart from the commands of our ruler and our king, Christ, but found in submission to him and found in making him our hope. Counsel goes on. Raging goes on. And in the midst of all of that, the good life is still found as it was in chapter 2, verse 12, in refuge of Jesus. May we see all the Psalms through our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be our delight. May he be our hope. Let's pray together.
2: Pray. Father, how awesome is your law? Uh, We do confess that we see your law as burdensome sometimes, and that's due to our own sin. Forgive us of our sin. Help us to see the blessed way that you so clearly show us in scripture, not just in Matthew 5, but like Dylan pointed out from the very beginning. Forgive us of our ways of misreading your word, mistreating your very words that you wrote to us. God, change our perspective. Help us to see your upside down kingdom and not pursue the ways of the world. God, we confess that when we see nations rage, sometimes we do too. And our anxieties, the things that we complain about and get up in arms about. Father, to a world that is inundated with that, would you help us to be salt and light because of what we have just heard today in your words, that you sit, you are sitting right now. Help us to rest in that. So thankful for having a ruler that we don't have to wonder if he's powerful enough and we don't have to wonder if he understands us or is using us like worldly rulers do, but one who descended and became man and took upon everything that we had to walk through, and he came out the other side. And his name is worthy to be praised. And Father, we thank you for testimonies of new life. We thank you for what we saw, this picture of baptism today, and the testimony from B.B. that, man, we are a mess, but you're gonna clean us up. We are so grateful for that hear our gratitude and our songs of response, and God, if in a room this size, chances are that um, maybe somebody hasn't turned their mess over to you, would this be the day that you use the testimony of your people, of your gospel, of your good news, and this is how you work. And we are so thankful for that. And for those of us in Christ who have been so encouraged by that same testimony in your word today, hear our praises, pray these things in your name. Amen.